warriors in their own words, is brought to you by The Honor Project, committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record. This presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. John C. Muir was a decorated combat veteran of the Vietnam War. He hailed from four generations of men and women who served in distinguished military service. He was also cousin to John Muir, the famous naturalist and conservationist, who has been called the father of America's national parks. In 1965, John Muir volunteered for the U.S. Marine Corps and was sent to Vietnam. We interviewed him in 1994, and he was an excellent storyteller who delivered powerful words about fighting the war and returning home. I was with Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines. My MOS was 0311, which is basic Marine Corps rifleman, which is a good definition of the bottom of the pile. What are your impressions of basic training, maybe juxtaposing the, the, the times of the day, mm -hmm. the time you went in, and uh, the 60s? What was that all about for you? Well, first of all, in juxtaposing the basic training regimen with the 60s, probably doesn't really work in this instance because I was uh, I went to basic training in September of 1965 and at that time most of the country was either unaware of the war in Vietnam or totally behind it there was no real significant uh, anti-war movement per se at that time the beginnings of the student unrest were starting to be felt but they were really talking about other subjects other than the war uh, it wasn't until a little later on that the war became one of their primary focuses. Um, uh, as a matter, of, and I come from a military family anyway. As a matter of fact, the second day I was in boot camp, my uncle was killed in Vietnam. He was the battalion commander of Third Battalion, Third Marines, and uh, a lieutenant colonel. And at the time, he was the highest-ranking American that had been killed in Vietnam. And that was the beginnings of my education as to the reality of the war as opposed to my perceptions of this big adventure that I wanted to be involved in. Because as a young, as a youngster, as a teenager, I think pretty typical of most of the people of my age, we viewed both uh, World War II and Korea as more of an adventure. We didn't have a real grasp of what the reality of the war had been. And I think that's true of, of every war. So I, I joined the Marine Corps basically looking for some adventure because I was tired of being in school. I'd just finished high school and I wanted to get on out in the world and see what was going on. And this was my opportunity to get a piece of a brand new war that was going to be big adventures. And then the second day of boot camp, I get the word that my uncle had been killed and suddenly didn't seem quite so adventurous anymore. And of course, immediately upon arriving in Vietnam, <laughs> this reality was brought home to me rather quickly, so that uh, it was a, a, a learning curve that was fairly steep. How did you feel completing boot camp? Oh, I was, uh, because I had never really expected to fail in boot camp, uh, it was, for me, it was more just a progression situation. I felt proud, obviously, but um, 
And my family was proud. Uh, I was anxious to get on with the job. I, uh, I didn't put a lot of stock in. I'd, I'd been raised around the Marine Corps, so I'd seen a lot of parades and saluting and uh, the pomp and circumstance that goes with it. Uh, and I don't denigrate that. It is important. It's part of the package. It's part of what makes the Marines work. And, um, uh, but for me personally, I was more interested in getting on with things. Get, I wanted to get into advanced training, get it over with, and get on to Vietnam. When I arrived in Vietnam, I joined a company that was already in place. Like most people, except for the 3rd Marine Amphibious Brigade that landed in Da Nang in 65, most of the people that went to Vietnam joined a unit that was already in place. And so I had been assigned to uh, Echo 2-1 and arrived right at the uh, height of Operation Harvest Moon, which was a, a large operation. And I got plopped down right in the middle of that and uh, had been led to believe that there were, you know, for better or worse, I had been taught that we were now in a new age of warfare, that uh, you know, it was a more technological warfare. We needed more technological training. And even the infantry was supposedly um, a lot more uh, technologically advanced than it had been in previous wars. And yet the first under fire command that I received was fixed bayonets. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're in the wrong war here. I, <laughs> I've been dropped down in a, in a, into the wrong place. I'm not supposed to be fixing bayonets. And that's exactly what happened. That was my first under fire experience was fixed bayonets. And uh, go down this trench line because Fox Company had been ambushed in the middle of this big trench situation and just chewed to pieces. Uh, and it was also the first experience that we had, all of us had, with the idea that the American government was not being completely forthcoming with the facts. Fox Company 2-1 in, in the late stages of Harvest Moon was reduced down to a non-functioning company. They had lost everybody but about half a dozen effectives. They were just chewed up completely. They were so badly beat up that they formed the first combined action company. They put them out in the village because they weren't really a functioning Marine Corps infantry company anymore. And yet the American government and the American people were never told this. They never, they never heard that. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until five months later when we got chewed up up on the DMZ that we were the, we were the first company that the American government officially listed as having sustained heavy casualties. And we lost about 50%. And, uh, but we knew that to be a lie because we'd seen Fox Company get chewed up. So we began to understand right away that some of the rules of morality were being suspended. That the American people were being, if not lied to, at least you know, the truth was being diverted somewhere between here and the Potomac River. And uh, that, was, that was a real eye-opener for us. And it began to develop the attitude of them against us. And as time went by, that them against us attitude reduced itself down to that one company. And the, the them was everybody else, including the rest of the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Army, the Arvin, not just the VC and the NVA. It was everybody else. We felt threatened by everybody. And so we insulated ourselves. And 
in some ways it made us a better, more cohesive fighting unit, but it didn't make us easy to get along with. And my company spent most of the time that I was there operating independently. We didn't do a lot of operations with the rest of the battalion. We didn't do, you know, we, we, we moved from place to place and joined in with other companies and other battalions. And, and basically we were, we had the fireman role. When somebody would get into big trouble, they would pull us out and throw us into the middle of it. And again, that part of that uh, fed that attitude of insulation. That, that. It then became a company level war. And we thought of it that way, and we fought it that way. The squads and the platoons took on much greater importance than we had been expected, you know, much greater uh, importance than we had been trained for and led to believe was going to happen. And uh, so it became a real small unit war for us right then. What was Harvest Moon? Harvest Moon? It was an operation against an NV. It was supposed to be an operation against an NVA company. It turned out to be a regiment. <laughs> Bad intelligence. All of the operations that we went on had names. I mean, they all, you know, had had they, they, Harvest Moon, uh, New York. We went through a whole period of states there for a while: New York, Texas, Oregon. Uh, then we went to Operation Prairie, Operation Hastings. Uh, you know, all all of these. You know, they either had a name when they developed them, or else developed a name after the fact. So it wasn't part of a sustained campaign. It had a beginning and an end. Well, yeah, it was. You know, it wasn't like the Rolling Thunder or right. Linebacker. No, no. Yeah, it was a. It was a, a, a short duration, specific operation. You were saying that you fought as a company, and you were you were putting out fires and things. What types of missions were you asked to do at first, and how did they uh, perhaps evolve into missions you were doing later? Did you see a denigration of...? of yeah, it changed radically. Um, at first, Echo 2-1 was the last Marine Corps Raider company. And um, that didn't really mean much to anybody except General Krulak. General Krulak believed that the Raider company had a specific role, that we were supposed to do that job of, of, of going into hot spots and bailing people out. Um, it only counted because General Krulak was in charge. <laughs> so uh, that made it important. So at the beginning of my tour, we spent a lot of time working with other units. We worked, we were, we were uh, with the 3rd Marine Division and the 1st Marine Division, even though we were technically in the 1st Marine Division. Uh, we worked with 9th Marines, 4th Marines, 3rd Marines. We were all over the map. Uh, we went from, literally from July to the DMZ, and just about everywhere in between. Then uh, we did a lot of the search and destroy type function. Uh, we pretty much on our own, in between trouble spots, we were pretty much on our own to go out, see if we could find bad guys and hurt them. We had a very aggressive company commander uh, a Naval Academy graduate named uh, Thomas M. Pratt III, uh, who believed very strongly that uh, our purpose was to uh, find enemy troops and see how much hurt we could lay on them. And we were pretty good at it. We'd been working that regimen pretty hard for four or five months, and they uh, they decided to give us a break and send us up to a little Air Force outpost, radar outpost, up on a DMZ at a place called Dong Ha.
where, which was a very lonely little outpost that was protected by one company of Marines on a rotation basis. And it was like a little bit of in-country R&R. It was a very quiet little corner backwater that nothing much was going on. And they would send a company up there one at a time to get a little rest. And they decided that we deserved our little rest period, so they sent us up to Dongha to get a couple of weeks of rest. And it was during that period that the North Vietnamese decided to send two, two divisions across the DMZ, which uh, we were the only force there. And so they came across, and we went out and met them. And uh, this was uh, at the beginning of July, over the July 4th holiday, interestingly, 1966. When um, we started off with one company against two NVA divisions, and in four days there was a regiment up there with us, and in six days the whole 1st Marine Division was there. So it, it grew from, I mean, it, it grew into a major battle real fast. But uh, we had to hold them off for those four days until the rest of the regiment got there, and so we got beat up real bad. The day that the, the reconnaissance found that the NVA was coming across, we had, I think, if memory serves, about 190 people in the company. And four days later, we were down to 91. So those, that's what I mean by beat up. We were, we were, we were essentially, our, our fighting effectiveness was cut in half in four days. Now, those weren't all killed. Uh, I think we had uh, something like 38 or 39 killed. The rest were wounded. When you say you closed with the enemy, was it, uh, was it within yards? Uh, at times it was, during those four-day period. I mean, it got very chaotic, but they were, they were forced, because they had a lot of transport and equipment and stuff with them, they were forced by the terrain. I mean, when you move a, a regular Army division, whether you're the NVA or the Marines, it doesn't matter, you need you know, solid ground to move equipment and, and, and material and, and all that stuff on. I mean, you're trying to move 10 or 12,000 people is a big, big operation. They were forced by the terrain into this one valley, and this valley had a little hill in the middle of it, and we were on that hill, and we just wouldn't let them pass. And so, yeah, at times they came up that bottom of that hill pretty close. And uh, uh, basically all we had to do was just hold out. And we had a big advantage, and that is that the helicopters were able to resupply us. They had to bring everything with them. But... There were times when we literally ran out of bullets and water, which are the two keys in that kind of situation. But uh, the helicopters did a magnificent job of getting in there under extremely dangerous conditions and dropping off water, ammunition. So you're fighting North Vietnamese regulars? Yeah. What, what were they like? Did you ever see them with your eyes, with binoculars or...? Saw them in rifle sights. <laughs> were, they, uh, were they tenacious? Uh, good enough for me. <laughs> they were uh, they were an extremely seasoned, well-trained fighting force. They had you got to remember they'd been at war since 1939. Basically, I mean they started. There were some casual contact against the French before the World War II, but the 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 North Vietnamese Army basically began as the Viet Minh with some fighting against the French, but blew up into a full-grown army during World War II fighting against the Japanese. And then 
was completely seasoned after World War II against the French. By the time they got to us, these guys had been at war or had been in training for war for 25 years. And uh, they knew what they were doing. And uh, fortunately, in our case, we did too. And, and, and we, had, we had massive amounts of help that they couldn't rely on. They were never able to call on, they could, they could call on artillery support, but they were never able to call on air support. We had air, air strikes going on against them around the clock during those four days. We had naval gunfire. We weren't that far from the coast. Naval gunfire was, uh, was operating. And, um, and of course, by the end of the week, we had our own in-place artillery support set up. And uh, yeah, they were, they were very good. Good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> And this particular battle was more like a regular World War II type set piece battle. I mean, we knew where they were, they knew where we were, and we came together. Pretty much like a, a, a regular standard military operation. That was really the, uh, uh, the exception. Most of the time, we would get intelligence reports that a, a Vietnamese or a VC, we'll say a VC regiment or a VC company was operating in a certain area. We would go into that area, live in the field, try to interdict their uh, movement routes, uh, try to disrupt their behavior in such a way as to cause them to either feel like they were trapped or feel like they could... Uh... We would often send out a squad or uh, a platoon to try to entice them into attacking us, thinking that they had a superior position on us. And then we would come in after that, uh, baiting the trap. We would use blocking forces uh, to try to interdict their communications and, and supply routes. M most people, when they think of the VC, they think of you know, little ragtag, independent, almost individuals fighting this, this guerrilla campaign. But in point of fact, the, guerrilla, the VC were, were extremely well organized. They had a regular uh, chain of command and they had uh, written communications. You know, they had, uh, uh, they didn't move without, the, just like the American military, they didn't move without regular written orders that came down the chain. Um, they, were, they were extremely well organized and we tried to disrupt that organization. We would try to break up that, that communication, which is vital to any military force. Because you can't really operate, I know it's romantic to think that you could go off by yourself and fight against the invading horde, but you can't really do that. You need that communications and, and you, need, you need to be told where to go and when to go. And that's what we tried to do. And of course we would try to pocket them, we would try to back them into corners and force them to fight. Most of the time we spent chasing them because they didn't want to fight us. That wasn't their job, that wasn't what they were supposed to do, they weren't cowards. But their tactics dictated that they should only engage when they had an overwhelming opportunity to win that engagement. And that went from firefights to set battles. It didn't make any difference. That was a consistent with them. They would only stop and engage when they had uh, overwhelming opportunity to win that particular engagement. So they spent a lot of time trying to fade back into the woodwork and we spent a lot of time chasing them, trying to keep them from doing that.
didn't check tunnels, but you did check ambushes. Um, did those two go hand in hand? Well, we didn't get into a lot of tunneling work uh, because most of the tunnels were, uh, we got in a little bit, but mostly what we did was buck bunkers more than tunnels. Uh, in the area uh, immediately north and, uh, and west of Saigon, there was a, an enormous tunnel complex where they used an awful lot of tunnels later on in the war. Uh, and so there was a lot of, of uh, people who had to work those tunnels, which was excruciatingly difficult work. I, I can't even imagine having to go down into a blackened tunnel and try to find out somebody on there. It's just terrifying. Um, we we went up against bunkers. We went up, uh, you know, um, they were everything from pillboxes, offensively designed uh, bunker situations or reinforced positions to uh, air raid shelters, basically, people go hide in them. And of course, the one constant that we had a big problem with was trying to sort out um, the, the, the people we were there to try to help were the South Vietnamese. And we had no desire or interest in hurting them. But the, one of the VC's very effective tactics was to hide in amongst the South Vietnamese, which makes it very difficult to pick them out. And that was a consistent problem for us. Uh, the government tried a number of different tactics to try to ameliorate this problem. That's where the whole idea of the, of the uh, dislocation of, of whole populations came in. They would pick up a whole village and move it to a, a fortified uh, hamlet, uh, is what they refer to it as, and um, which is basically like taking the good guys and putting them in jail and let the bad guys run free. Uh, but they would, even on an individual basis, they would duck down in a, in a bomb shelter along with the family who owned the bomb shelter. So you couldn't just chuck a grenade in there. I mean, the whole purpose of being there was to, was to uh, try to prevent the VC from taking over the country. I mean, we wanted to help the South Vietnamese, and we were there to kill them. And, but if the VC is going to hide in amongst them, it makes it a real serious problem. And, of course, there, that was a consistent problem throughout the war. And that I don't think they ever did come up with a reasonable attitude, you know, a reasonable way to deal with that. I mean, it was basically a, a mistake from word go. I mean, we wanted to fight the North Vietnamese, but we were fighting in South Vietnam. It doesn't make sense on its face. You go to North Vietnam and attack them, you can shoot everybody. They're all bad guys, but we never did go into North Vietnam. I mean, I mean we burnt down South Vietnam in order to try to save it which is nonsensical on its face. But it seemed sensible at the time. That's the part that's strange. How did the policy of attrition affect you and your unit? You said that you had a commander that just felt like the more you could kill, the better. Well, that was the job. I mean, our job, we, we had a very simple assignment. We, you know, carry as much ordnance with us as we possibly could, go out and fan out in as much, uh, a, a, as large an area as we could, find anybody who was armed, basically, because anybody carrying a gun was on the other side, except for the Arvin, of course. But, uh, you know, go out, see if you can find, get somebody to shoot at you, and then just shoot the hell out of them. Now, I'm sure you could probably make that into a nice, you know, Pentagon sort of phrase by saying it's a policy of attrition. But, I mean, that's, that's just a, a fancy handle for uh, war is, an, is, is a policy of taking one side, trying to kill the other side. And 
you know, uh, I'm sure that General Westmoreland was supposedly quoted as saying, if we kill enough of them, they can't, we'll, we'll outpace the birth rate. And they, they won't be able to, to bring down enough soldiers to do this. But at this early point in the war, in 1966, our primary enemy was uh, a hardcore, seasoned, well-trained cadre of people who had been left behind in 1954 when the country had been separated. These were people who'd been in place for a decade. Uh, they knew, they had inculcated themselves into the, into the fabric of the society. And they were true believers. I mean, you can't, yeah. in communism, in the North Vietnamese communist government, uh, the Viet Cong were true believers in the North Vietnamese communist form of government. They'd been left behind on purpose for that very reason. And, and uh, I mean, these weren't... A popular conception nowadays is to look back on these guys and say, well, they were, they were recruiting, you know, popular support from the population there. Their, their recruiting methods were real simple and direct. They would go into a small village, take the village chief, tie him to a post in the middle of the village square, and they would disembowel him. And while he's dying, they would line everybody else up in the village, and they say, this is what happens to people that we deem are enemies of the people. Now, who wants to be on our side? Well, they had vast numbers of volunteers all of a sudden. I mean, nobody was going to stand there and say, this is the wrong thing to do. Never for any moment forget that the VC were really bad guys. I mean, there's, I fall into the trap myself sometimes of thinking back on those days and saying, well, geez, I mean, Ho Chi Minh was just a, a nationalist. That may be true, but some of his tactics were terrifying. Of course, some of ours were as well. War is a nasty thing. War is, is the suspension of rational behavior. They would do crazy things. We would do crazy things. We would suspend rational thought. You know, a bunch of 19-year-old Americans who basically would uh, go crazy every once in a while. That's what happens when you get under fire. You can't think rational thoughts when somebody's shooting at you. I mean, if you get ambushed, there's only three things you can do. You can turn and run, you can drop down in a fetal position and cry for your mommy, or you can attack the ambush. The first two things will get you killed. That's what the ambush is designed to do. It's to kill people who turn and run or drop down and cry for mommy. That's what ambushes do. They kill you. If you want to survive the ambush, you have to suspend rational thought and attack the ambush. It's the craziest thing you can possibly do. It is an insane thing to do. It's the only chance you have of surviving the ambush. You must attack the ambush. Now you take a bunch of 19-year-olds and get them to do that. Now the problem is you've loaded them up, now you got to unload them. <laughs> Getting them to stop doing that is the problem. One of the things that we don't like to admit as a society is the fact that when we send young men off to war, or nowadays young women as well, when we send young people off to war, basically what we are doing is creating a weapon. The infantryman is, after all, the most complex weapon system ever made. 
Uh, I know it, it, it's, you know, it doesn't sell as many tickets in the Pentagon. It's not a sexy budget item, but the infantryman's what actually gets it done. And it's the most complicated and most, it, it takes the most care of any weapon system. When we send young people off to war, we are creating a weapon system. We are loading a weapon. Our job as a society is then to unload that weapon. The one thing in Vietnam we failed at really miserably was unloading the weapon. It's a very serious problem to uh, care for and support the infantrymen in the field. Most weapon systems, you put them in place and just, you know, clean them once in a while, oil them, you know, that's it. The infantryman has to be cared for constantly, 24 hours a day, all the time. He has to be fed, uh, has, his, his various human needs have to be looked after. At the same time, you have to keep him primed and ready to do battle. And in that sense, that's what we do as a, as a nation when we, when we send people off to war, is we create this weapon system. We load a weapon and we send it off to do battle. One of, the, one of the big problems that we had in the Vietnam era was that we created these weapons, we loaded these weapons, and then we did not unload them. We took them right out of the field and dropped them right back down into the civilized world with no decompression period, with no retraining period, with no breathing space. And people, in my own case, for instance, I was less than 24 hours from firefight to fireside. I came out of Vietnam and was back here in California in less than 24 hours. And I had no decompression period. I had no even just breathing space. I got off the airplane at El Toro and I was still in utilities with Vietnamese dirt on them with mud all over them. And they wouldn't let me off the base because you're not allowed in the Marine Corps, you're not allowed to go off the base in utilities, or at least you weren't in those days. And I had to go to the PX at El Toro and buy a set of civilian clothes in order to get off the base. Now, in my, in my case, I suppose I had some decompression period because I was still in the Marine Corps and I was going to remain in the Marine Corps for another two and a half to three years. But a lot of people didn't have that happen. They got out. They not only came back from Vietnam, but they were out of the service in days. They'd come back, get processed out, and boom, they're back in, you know, go find a job, son. <laughs> you know, just like that. And, and they had no opportunity at all to even restructure their thinking processes. I know lots of people who were squad leaders in Vietnam, were lance corporals, corporals, sergeants, squad leaders, even platoon leaders, because we had a you know, lots of times we had sergeants as platoon leaders, even though it's supposed to be a lieutenant. I was never, in the whole time I was in Vietnam, we never had more than three officers in the whole company. And that, I mean, that means you must have an NCO as a platoon commander. And I, I know lots of times where people came back from having anywhere from a dozen to 40 people look to them for leadership, for their, their basic needs and desires, they were in charge of their whole life. And they came back, were booted out of the service, right back out on the street, looking for a job, and trying to explain to some potential employer why they didn't have a college education. 
why they needed to start in the mailroom when they just had 40 people look to them for everything. With no period of readjustment, no effort to make the transition any smoother at all, these people were bound to develop sociological problems trying to reintegrate back into society. It is a testament to the character of the average Vietnam veteran to just how little dislocation we actually did suffer during those years. And I know that everybody still wants to focus on the fact that the Vietnam veteran, uh, a friend of mine likes to say that if, if an ordinary citizen goes into a bank and shoots everybody in the bank, they'll say, uh, Joe Blow went into a bank yesterday and shot everybody in the bank. If a Vietnam veteran goes in to the bank and shoots everybody, they'll say, even today, they'll say, Joe Blow, Vietnam veteran, shot everybody in the bank. They won't say Joe Blow, Volkswagen driver, or they won't say Joe Blow, you know, whatever. But if he's a Vietnam veteran, they will say, the Vietnam veteran went off his nut and shot everybody. Because that's the, that's the, the expected result. That's what everybody perceives. Everybody's afraid of Vietnam veterans. They're just a little bit crazy. It's not true. It's a testament to the character of the Vietnam veteran. We didn't have more problems. They were asked to do the impossible. King's X, stop fighting. Go back to your life. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. John Muir believed that one of the greatest difficulties for troops in Vietnam was that the war often forced them to act against their own moral codes. When I was a kid, back in the 50s, we spent a lot of time in Saturday afternoon matinees. And uh, cowboy movies were a big deal. And it wasn't just John Wayne, although he was part of the package. It was, it wasn't, those were high budget films. We're talking about the real low budget odors. The Lash LaRue and the uh, Gene Autry and all of the, the singing cowboys. What those movies did to us was it taught us a certain code of behavior. A singer by the name of Mason Williams calls it the code of the cowboy buckaroo. And it's more than just white hats and black hats, more than just good guys and bad guys. It's, it's the way you approach difficulty. All of those movies had one thing very much in common, and that is the bad guys were the back-shooting bushwhackers. The lowest possible thing you could ever be was somebody who was a back-shooting bushwhacker. That was to the American youth of the 50s and early 60s. That was the epitome of what you weren't supposed to be. When I was in Vietnam, I was probably involved in, 
I never kept track of them, but I would be willing to, to bet that I was involved in at least 150 ambushes. When you ambush somebody, that's another word for bushwhacking. So we had been raised to believe that the bushwhacker was the lowest possible form of bad guy. And yet, now our daily regimen was to go out and bushwhack people. We were expected to flop all of our previous training 180 degrees, turn it around. It's okay to be a bushwhacker now. And you can intellectualize that, you can say that, but you know, how many movies do you have to watch before you, you really believe that uh, you're joining the bad guys? It's, it's not overly dramatic to say that this, in my mind, is one of the key moral issues of the Vietnam War. We were expected to do things that we had been taught were essentially un-American. Now, war is naturally, you know, an immorality. I mean, killing people and, and destroying people is uh, difficult for any society to do. But even on a deeper plane, we were told to go out and do things that we had spent our entire life being taught were un-American. And then expected to just forget that going about our life. And lots and lots of Vietnam veterans didn't forget it. I'm not sure many of them were able to really encapsulate that, verbalize that. But I believe that that's really one of the root causes of the continuing problems that many Vietnam veterans suffer with, is that that essential core of very typically American immorality that we were required to engage in. It is the only view we had. It was the view that we all bought into because we chose to. It was what we wanted to believe. We believed in America, the good. And of course, you know, we run into this problem all the time when we talk about the motivations for Vietnam. The motivations for Vietnam were great. We really didn't want to save a whole nation of people from being, you know, uh, eaten up by communism. That's on the individual level. On a geopolitical level, I think the, the, the motivations were certainly not quite so clear-cut, nor were they so pure. But uh, on an individual basis, most of the people that I served with in Vietnam went to Vietnam partially because of the adventure of going off to war and partially because, yeah, sure, we'll go help these people out. They're the underdogs. They're being attacked by these big bad guys from the north. Sure, we'll go help them out. That was the individual motivation that got most of the people I served with in Vietnam there. There's nothing wrong with that. A great deal wrong with the methodology we used. You cannot burn down the country to save it. It's the ultimate oxymoron. And that's what Vietnam was. We were fighting a war to try to keep people alive. And it's just, I mean, it's nonsensical on its face. It's silly. We're killing people to save them. Because war is always hard 
on the passers-by. This whole concept of collateral damage is one of the most obscene terms I've ever heard. Um, give you an example of collateral damage. I was going on, a, on an ambush patrol and we had to get to a specific location because artillery was going to be working that night. Artillery worked every night. It was important that the people at headquarters knew precisely where we were because hopefully they would then avoid blowing us up with our own artillery. So we needed to get to a specific pre-planned location and it was getting dark and we had to hurry. We were going down a road, a raised roadway. Uh, and a little old man, a very old, old man, came walking down the middle of this road, leading a water buffalo with a rather wrong, long rope coiled up in his hand. The water buffalo, uh, the rope was in the nose ring of the water buffalo. And we were in a staggered column down either side of this road. The old man was walking down between us. And the farther down this column he got, the more agitated the water buffalo got. Water buffaloes don't have real good vision. They live by their sense of smell, and we smell radically different than anything this water buffalo had ever smelled before. And he's getting more and more agitated. Water buffaloes have a very limited response to things. When they run into something they don't understand, that's what they do. They run into it. They lower their head and they bash into it. I don't know if you've ever seen a full-grown water buffalo run into anything, but you don't want to be whatever it is he runs into. As the water buffalo began to get more and more agitated, the old man began to get more and more tangled up in the rope. And it was obvious that he was beginning to lose control. And we're getting more and more nervous. Now you've got, I think uh, we had about 15 people in this particular patrol. You've got 15 extremely well-armed young Americans who are afraid of this water buffalo. The water buffalo begins to snort and drool and throw himself around and get really panic-stricken because he doesn't understand what's going on. You've got a little old man who's getting more and more tangled up and he's starting to get beat up pretty bad by this water buffalo. The water buffalo gives just the briefest hint that he's ready to charge and four or five guys just open up on him. Now everybody takes cover because it really doesn't matter whether you get shot by an American bullet or somebody else's bullet. Bullets are bullets. And when people start shooting, everybody takes cover. So now we have 15 very frightened young Americans, one very dead water buffalo, and one very dead, very old Vietnamese man. And we don't really know whether or not the old man was killed by the water buffalo stomping him to death or whether he was killed by one of those stray rounds. But we do know that that water buffalo was going to do us some damage had he gotten loose and attacked. And we weren't about to have a wounded water buffalo. There's one thing you really don't want to have is a pissed off water buffalo that's wounded. And night's falling. We have to get to this one particular place because otherwise we may get blown up by our own artillery. So what do you do? You collect all the paperwork from the old man and you take off. We didn't leave him behind because we were callous and uncaring. We left him behind because we were afraid of getting blown up by our own artillery. We got into a place that night. The ambush turned out to be nothing much of anything at all. The next morning we came back. We went up to headquarters. We gave them the paperwork from the old man. And we said, sorry, but we left a dead water buffalo on the old man. Dead on this road. 
they investigated. Somebody from division came down and they asked a lot of questions and they went out and did all this and that and the other thing. And they determined that it was, in fact, an accidental death and that the family should be compensated. The United States government paid that family $100 for the death of that old man. You understand, $100 in 1966 in Vietnam was a lot of money. The part that's upside down, though, is the fact that they paid them $300 for the death of the water buffalo. Most Americans find that at least awkward, but the fact of the matter is that it was right to a peasant family in Vietnam with a war going on all around their ears, the water buffalo was a lot more valuable than that old man. That's collateral damage. After his tour of duty, John Muir served in the U.S. State Department as a Marine Embassy Guard in Europe. He then went on to become an award-winning teacher, writer, filmmaker, and poet. He also remained active in veterans' concerns for more than 30 years. John C. Muir passed away in 2014 from the effects of wounds he sustained in the Vietnam War. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Warriors in Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, Heroes of Our Nation on Record, narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.